Hello and welcome to Corny and Barrow's podcast. Today I am joined by a very special guest, Paul Maris. Now, Paul has been part of the Corny and Barrow furniture for literally decades. He's an associate director and heads up our broking team. I am sure he is going to be absolutely fascinating to listen to. Paul, thank you very much for joining me. So, how did you end up working for Corny and Barrow? Mm, that's an interesting story. Uh, I'd been working in the wine trade for some time. The opportunity arose to go and work in California. Um, too good an opportunity to refuse. So off I went to California for two years. I came back to the UK, took a year out enjoying myself, then needed to get back into the wine trade, rang a very good friend of mine called Claire Burke, who was working at Corning Barrow at the time. Mm-hmm. She said, yes, come along, work for us pre-Christmas. We'll be very busy, your hands to the deck. And as you say, 29 years later, I'm still here. Limineck. Okay, that's um, that's impressive. What did you start off doing at Corny and Barrow? We, we had the very, very new broking team at the time. Um, I'd come from a uh, auction fine wine background, so I slipped into it quite comfortably and we just went from zero to thousand miles an hour very quickly. That's that, that's pretty impressive. Well done for, for spearheading that. So over the decades, I imagine your role has changed. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my, my role's changed, but then again, so the, the whole business has changed quite dramatically. Um, you know, technology's obviously played a huge part in the development of all, of all wine sales, not just at Corny and Barrow. So, yeah, technology, my role, obviously, I started, for want of a better word, at the bottom, worked my way up. Um, clearly, the amount of business grew dramatically. I then became involved in buying Bordeaux on Primeur. So, yeah, it's uh, no two days are ever really the same. That certainly sounds like a mixed bag. Touching on broking... Wasn't Corny and Barrow the first fine wine merchant to set up a, a broking operation? Can you tell me a little bit about that? How did that come about? Yeah, Corny and Barrow were the first of the so-called blue chip companies to, to introduce a broking division. Uh, prior to Corny and Barrow having a broking division, they, they suggested to their customers who wanted to sell wine that they might want to go to an auction house. Um, clearly, we were turning away business. So Adam Brett Smith, uh, who was a, a very new managing director at the time, decided it would be a good idea if Corny and Barrow kept that business. And he set up the Corny and Barrow Broking Department, which at the time, uh, if I recall, I wasn't there. It was two years prior to my arrival. But if I recall, there were three people in it. And and that was how it started many moons ago. So Corny and Barrow were trendsetters. Corny and Barrow were indeed trendsetters, hard as it is to believe. <laughs> so we were the first of the blue chip wine merchants to get into broking. How has that changed over the decades? Has it become a more challenging part of the business? 
it's it's become more challenging in so much as as, as customers are now much more knowledgeable. You know, with the internet, everyone's an expert on whatever topic they want to be. Mm. So, you know, pricing, data, availability, transparency, you know, everything you, a customer wants to know is out there on the net. So, it's it's become more competitive. Certainly, there's a lot more players in the market now. We still offer what I consider to be the most bespoke service. You know, we hold our hand from beginning to end. And I think that old style courtesy is appreciated. And I think that's one of our major points of difference. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What would you say represents the largest category of wines that we broke? What, is it Bordeaux? Is it Burgundy? Is it Champagne? What's, what's, what's our most broking action with? Uh, at the very beginning and still today, it is it is Bordeaux, um, which is hardly surprising considering Bordeaux makes more wine in France than anyone else. So, mm-hmm. but clearly, over the years, trends have changed. We've seen a massive upsurge in in Italian sales, and clearly, the pricing of Burgundy over the last few years has become uh, very attractive to customers who want to sell their wine. Shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, and also top quality champagne. So, yes, it's changed, but not dramatically. You know, what was popular previously is still popular. Is there anything that's brand new on the block? Possibly some Californian wines, but nothing. Turning that question on its head, what has changed in, in a negative trend is sales of vintage port which have decreased dramatically over the years. Oh. Are people still buying vintage port as as godchild gifts? Are we still seeing a lot of that? No, I don't think so. Um, There's a lot of godchildren trying to offload their port, but I don't think there's a lot of new godchildren receiving port. Interesting, interesting. So, Paul, I'd like to pick your brains. If there was one wine over the years that you wish you'd bought on Primeur, with a view to then broking it or drinking it, or maybe a little from column A, a little from column B, what what would you have liked to have bought on release if you could? Now, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, clearly, from Bordeaux, it would probably be Petrus. From Burgundy, it would be one of the wines from Demendela Romaniconti. Uh, they are probably the two most dramatically uh, price-increased wines that we've had. Mm. There have been some newer producers recently that have gone uh, slightly crazy, but, yeah, I, I think Petrus and Romani Conti would be the surefire bets. Excellent. Both of whom we represent, of course. Yeah. So, Paul... You are known as our, as a Bordeaux baby, um, <laughs> believe it or not. Why did you get involved in the buying side of Bordeaux in addition to, to the broking? You go over to Bordeaux, you, you taste, you help with blending. Um, what, what is it about Bordeaux that's, that appeals to you? What appeals about Bordeaux? Good question. 
Um, the history, it, it's been a trading town for hundreds of years. It's incredibly international. The number of nationalities that work in Bordeaux, people imagine it will be full of French people. It's not. It, it really is a melting pot. And it, it is a, a real trading centre. And it, it's just exciting to see new wines released, older wines sold on the Place. As you touched on, uh, we we blend our own house claret down there. It's it's an ever changing scene, and it's 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 exciting. It's still exciting now, all these years later. So, well, that's great. That's uh, that's good to hear. I guess following on from Bordeaux, uh, the natural next place would be En Primeur, because let's face it, the bulk of the En Primeur is you know, Bordeaux, Burgundy. To those who aren't aware, could you give us like a, a potted history of En Primeur? What is it? How does it work? Uh, the, the, the modern take on En Primeur is slightly different to the old take, but we'll stick with the modern take. When I say modern, it's basically been going for the last 60 odd years. So timescale is... The producers make their wine in the spring of the following year. The the global wine trade descends on Bordeaux to taste those wines, normally in around April time. And then sort of between May and the end of June, the producers release the wine onto the market for sale. Uh, the system in Bordeaux, from an outsider's point of view, may seem to be rather complex and antiquated. So the, the producer releases it to a, a courtier um, who then releases it to the négociant, who are the local wine merchants in Bordeaux. Clearly, each section takes their cut and then the négociant sells it to the wine merchants around the world, including us in London. So it, it is convoluted, but it works. Um, if it didn't work, they wouldn't still be doing it. Um, there's always opinions on Bordeaux, whether on, on Bordeaux on Prima and and the pricing, and whether there is any benefit of buying on Prima. Clearly, in a year when the wine is considered to be outstanding and the and the global market exceeds to production, it's it's clearly a good idea to buy on Prima to secure your stocks. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, as part of on Prima. You go over to Bordeaux, uh, you talked about doing some tasting, quite a lot of tasting by the sounds of it. I've, I've heard that you guys pack in quite a lot of, a, a lot of tastings um, each day. So do you have any anecdotes from your trips in Bordeaux? Yeah, one of my most enjoyable events was, was a, a dinner hosted by a particular negociant in Bordeaux. Um, we, we were on a circular table hosted by as I said, the negotiation company. Um, the guy hosting it was a, a friend of mine over the, who I'd got to know over the years. One of his other areas that he, he sold to was um, the Baltic countries. So we had um, people from Estonia and Latvia. Mm -hmm. And as the evening wore on and the wine flowed, the laughter increased. They very kindly bought out a bottle of 59 and 61 Chateau Palmer. Um, which clearly 
everyone thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> our host then discovered that myself and, a, and another young lady at the table were born in 61, uh, to which he decided that we needed another bottle of 61 Palmer. So off, off he trotted to the cellar, put the bottle between her and I and said, enjoy yourselves, which was incredibly kind. And it was a wow. truly wonderful night. That I, I can see why that was memorable. Um, mm. And that, that was not a bad vintage, was it, 61? No, it was an um, excellent vintage. But the company that night was, was superb. And, and as I say, the, the food and the laughter and the wine made it an incredibly memorable night. That's, that's really lovely. That is lovely to hear. So when you are traveling, um, doing your Bordeaux tastings, can you give me um, just a, a rough idea, a, a day in the life of uh, a London fine wine merchant in Bordeaux doing the premieres? A day in the life. Everyone imagines it to be probably very um, exciting, even romantic. A quick, a quick explanation of a normal day. Uh, we get up at about six o'clock. We're out at a hotel by seven. We rent a nine-seater minibus, so we all jump into the minibus and off we go. We'll be lucky if we're back at a hotel by six o'clock in the evening and we aim to do anything between sort of 12 and 15 visits a day. We try and do it in a sort of geographically sensible way so that we're not sitting in the bus for an incredibly long time going from A to B. How many wines do we taste a day? Blah. I'd say we taste at least 50 wines a day, so. Cripes. Do you find that you get any sort of fatigue or what do you do to try and counter that? How how do you ensure that you're tasting fresh each time? The best uh, anti-fatigue device is a cold beer in the evening, <laughs> uh, oh. which clears the palate incredibly well. That's a top tip right there. Excellent. There is a top tip. You'll see lots of wine merchants drinking lots of beer in the evening in Bordeaux. Oh, oh that's... People try and offer you a glass of champagne and it's probably the last thing you want. I did not know that. Given that you've just returned from tasting the 2022 primers in Bordeaux, what, what are your thoughts on the vintage and the wines? Uh, 22 Vintage is a very good to outstanding vintage. It, it's also a vintage that is, is very, very complicated. Uh, the growing season was incredibly hot and dry, which would normally result in, in wines of a certain style. However, technology again has advanced and, and the vineyard management and the techniques used in the winery have produced incredibly fresh, vibrant wines. Uh, people tended to compare it to 2003 because of the temperature, but you can't really compare it because, as I say, the, the technolo technological aspects in the vineyard and the, and the winery have changed so much that even if they did have fruit similar to 2003, they're capable of producing an entirely different wine. Mm. So, yeah, I'm very excited by the upcoming sale of the 2022s. Okay. Some really stunning wines. Are there any particular wines that you're going to be hoping to add to the the Maris on Premier portfolio? Uh, everything I want to buy, everybody else wants to buy. So it will, we will endeavour. We'll see how we do. Clearly, some of the standout wines um, 
Carmo Brion was outstanding. Morrows was outstanding. Um, Latour, although not released on Primo anymore, mm. was outstanding. On on the plus side, there wasn't particularly one commune that stood head and shoulders above the others. So it, it's nice that everybody this year has made some good wine. That's good. Yeah, that's good. So, Paul, if you hadn't ended up in the wine industry, can you imagine what career path you may have embarked upon? What would you be doing right now if you hadn't uh, followed up with wine? That's a question that you would need to have asked my younger self at the time. Uh, My older self would probably answer that by saying, I'd like to make bespoke handmade furniture. Uh, had I, would I have said that 30 years ago? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> but who knows what I would have said 30 years ago. But now, as I say, the, the value of hindsight, yeah, some sort of carpentry would appeal to me now. Okay. Okay. So what are your passions or hobbies outside of wine? Do you dabble in carpentry or is that just a Dream. I don't dabble in carpentry yet. I may dabble in carpentry in a not too distant future. Uh, what do I do? Um, well, clearly, I like eating and drinking, as does everybody in the wine trade. <laughs> we do. Uh, I also like swimming. I like being outdoors, taking in the fresh air, walking. Nothing dramatic, I'm afraid. Those days are behind me. But uh, yeah, I used <laughs> to enjoy long distance sailing, scuba diving, I even leapt out of an aeroplane once. So The younger me did a few crazy things. Yeah, younger me did too, but uh, we won't talk about those. (laughs) Paul, one one little question. Uh, Why is there a Lego Darth Vader attached to your monitor? Would you care to explain that? Yeah, he's not actually Lego. He'd be very upset if you described him as Lego. He's actually (laughs) a a plastic figurine. I stand corrected. it, it was a Secret Santa present from a colleague at work many moons ago uh, for some reason that I've never understood. One of my previous nicknames was Darth Vader, probably because of my sparkling personality. <laughs> um, I was quite, I was very touched by it, actually, which is why I give it a place of honour on top of my monitor, stuck there with a little bit of blue tech. <laughs> well, thank you for, for sharing that with us in your time you have been in many a cellar i'm sure have there been any particularly interesting cellars that you've been in are there any stories around some of the cellars that you've visited one of the more interesting events was uh i was clearing out well moving moving a cellar from central london out to buckinghamshire and it was a very big job and it we did a couple of days a week uh one of the days we were working was the days of the poll tax riots this is only going to mean something to a very small minority of the people listening to this (laughs) uh but the cellar was located just off trafalgar square and the poll tax riots were taking place in trafalgar square we were trying to drive a van loaded with very expensive wine through a group of rioters with our fingers crossed and trying not to run anyone over. It was an exciting day. Cripes. That's, yeah, that would certainly be exciting in my book. Mm. Okay. You are known for having some links with Israel. You might want to clarify now. Um, so please 
Go on. Uh, my links for Israel, it's just it basically because Cunard were looking for an Israeli wine. Well, they were looking for wines from many countries, but one of the countries was Israel. Uh, there was a friend of mine who worked for a company in Bordeaux called Seashell. They import a wine from Israel. Seashell have always been very good friends of ours. So we ended up selling this wine to Cunard. Uh, the the property in Israel were so happy that they then asked if I would like to go and visit, which I did. Um, got to see Israel, went to Jerusalem, incredible country, clearly beset by yeah. quite a few problems, but uh, nevertheless an incredible country. It is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, thank you for clarifying that one. And to kind of finish up, are there any any quirky stories about about the broking side of things sorts of queries that you've had to, to pick up or help out with or, or deal with um, yes many and varied but one of my favorite which is a, a, an ongoing situation I'm pleased to say is coming into the office on a Monday morning and getting phone calls from either distraught wives mothers girlfriends children who have managed to drink something from their partner father lovers seller which they shouldn't have drunk so they then scuttle off bring back an empty bottle and say can you tell me how much it would cost to replace so and so you then tell them it'd be um, anywhere between 250 and five thousand pounds and the response is uh, normally quite amusing especially when it's especially when it's a teenage child and uh, oh bless them that must i'm just rather them than me that's for sure mm. oh my goodness Oh my goodness. Well, Paul, I almost called you Mr. Maris then. It has been a pleasure. Uh, it was it was great to see you. Great to talk to you. Thank you for giving us a little bit of insight um, into the world of Paul Maris and, uh, and Corny and Barrow and some of the things that you get up to. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. <laughs>